0: Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. John, the fourth chapter, the 16th through 18th verses. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please be seated it feels providential in a way that such a dense and rich passage is centered around an interaction at a well a source of water that you come back to again and again there are many opportunities for good and sound instruction layers of meaning rich veins of truth all from the mouth and hands and feet of jesus christ there's a lot here to drink in as it were Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman is a very explicit presentation of the gospel message, along with Jesus' proclamation of himself as the Messiah. We get a picture of reconciliation between the Samaritan people and the Jews in Jesus' revelation of himself to the woman and then the town of Sychar. We hear Jesus' instruction of what right worship consists of and how it is independent of location. Today being the third Sunday in Lent, a season principally focused on penitential preparation, it seems appropriate to key in on this episode as it relates to sin and forgiveness. We are told at the beginning of this passage that Jesus and his disciples are in the region of Samaria. As you may recall, the Jews and Samaritans don't really get along. The Jews view the Samaritans as unclean and look down on them while the Samaritans see the Jewish worship in the temple as false worship. The Samaritans descend from the ten tribes that rebelled against King Solomon's son, Rehoboam. They followed a man named Jeroboam, who set himself up as king over Israel in the north of the Promised Land, while Rehoboam reigned over Judah and Benjamin in the south. As part of this rebellion, and to to prevent the people from returning to Judah, Jeroboam set up an alternate worship site in the north centered around two golden bulls as a way of saying that the people didn't need to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. The northern kingdom went so far as to sin by falling into idolatry, leading to worse and worse sin until it was invaded and destroyed by Assyria. The Samaritans in Jesus' day descended from the remnant of those people, who intermarried with Gentile colonists from Assyria and Mesopotamia. From the beginning of the lesson, we should be aware that Jesus is in a region and among a people that share a corporate guilt for rebelling against God's anointed, abandoning the prescribed worship of God Almighty, and assimilating themselves into a foreign people who did not know God. This is the background that Jesus steps into when he enters the town of Sychar and sits down at the well. For all that the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders missed the point of the law and the plan of salvation, they are starting from the right place. They have upheld the law. They have kept themselves apart from the surrounding world, full of idolatry and uncleanness, utterly apart from God. As Jesus says later in the passage, the Jews worship what they know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus sits at the well at about noon, and the woman from Samaria approaches the well. An important thing to note is that right away, the original hearers of this message would know that something was off about this. Typically, the women drawing water would come in the morning before the heat of the day. The main reason someone would not come, or someone would come to draw water later in the day would be to avoid the people coming in the morning. One reason for this avoidance, and which seems to make sense given later details in the story, is due to some kind of public shame. So the woman comes to, d- to draw water from the well, which has the well of life sitting beside it, and Jesus asks her to draw water for him. This starts off a conversation where it seems almost like two wrestlers sparring. First, the woman asks why a Jew is even talking to a Samaritan, to which Jesus responds with the promise of living water. The woman then points out the fact Jesus doesn't have anything to draw water with, and then boasts that Jacob himself dug the well and drank from it himself. This leads Jesus to elaborate on what he means by living waters. Whoever drinks of the water will never thirst again and will themselves be able to supply water to others. The woman, of course, jumps at this opportunity and asks Jesus to give her this water he's promising. Jesus tells her to go and get her husband and bring him back, to which she responds that she has no husband. A curt statement she probably intended to close the subject, and which likely reveals why she is drawing water at noon in the heat of the day. This leads into the verses I read earlier. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is the extent of Jesus' interaction with her sin. A simple, gentle, yet unyielding statement that she has rightly identified herself as being in the sin of extramarital sex and cohabitation. Where the woman says she has no husband, Jesus uses his divine knowledge of the human heart to expand and say that she has had multiple previous husbands, and that she currently is with a man who is not her husband. We aren't told whether her previous marriages ended in divorce or in the deaths of her spouses. So it is not necessarily the case that her multiple marriages offend against the law. However, the fact of her living with and by implication having sexual relations with a man who is not her husband is certainly sin. And yet, Jesus does not rail against her as a sinner, does not take the opportunity to condemn her and add to her shame. Remember that this exchange is happening without any of the rest of the disciples present. The reason we know about it is that the woman went and told others about a man who told me everything I ever did. Naming her sin in this way serves to demonstrate that he does, that he does know about it, even though he hasn't met her before, and hasn't set foot in the town or talked to any of the residents who, seem, who she seems to be avoiding. This establishes his position as at least a prophet of Israel in her eyes, and gives him the credibility to then explicitly proclaim himself the Messiah later in the interaction. Another reason he names her sin is because Jesus is the light of men, as John attests to in the first chapter of his Gospel account. As the light, he illuminates, uncovers, reveals, and shows forth the things hidden in darkness, including those that we would rather stay hidden. He does not do this for our condemnation or our downfall though for some this is certainly the result unable to bear the light as they are no he does this out of his love for us because the sickness that is not diagnosed can never be healed this is why the honest naming of sin and error is a, is a gospel issue it is not unlo- unloving or intolerant to name something that is sinful sin At the same time, we must bear in mind why it is we name sin as sin. The truth spoken callously and devoid of love stems from the same error as justice without mercy. The truth is good, but a truth used as an arrow and without love does the work of the adversary. When Jesus names someone's error, sin, temptation, or other failures, he does so as a physician identifying a wound. The first step of healing an ailment is to properly identify it. Only then can the real work to correct the problem begin. But also notice that Jesus doesn't just go down the street pointing at people going, this one cheats on his wife, that one is a gossip and a slanderer, they get drunk all the time, or that person is a homosexual. When Jesus names the ways in which someone falls short, it is because they have brought themselves before him to hear his diagnosis and to receive treatment. As the one poured out before God who took the form of a servant, he pronounces truth in confident humility. Those who respond rightly to the light that is Jesus take his prescription to heart and go and tell others about a man who told me all I ever did. Those who would rather keep living their own lives as if they are their own ruler, scoff at him and call him crazy demon-possessed, or a blasphemer. Today, many might pronounce him inflexible, irrational, intolerant, or bigoted. The bottom line is that the light of men brings all things to light, and we either let the light cleanse us and bring us out of darkness, or scurry away from it and cling vainly to the shadows that darken our lives. The things humans do in secret will be revealed one way or the other, either by the Holy Spirit so that we may face them with humility and repentance, or in the last judgment, when those who have not humbled themselves will be humiliated and shamed. The story of the woman at the well teaches us that God desires far more for the revelation to come as a means of healing grace and not as our downfall and condemnation. Finally, we learn that no one can come to Jesus and hold on to their sin. Yes, we are faced with temptations and may even fall into sin on to- from time to time, but when we do seek repentance and forgiveness, and re- but when we do, we seek repentance and forgiveness and restoration. This is why confession is a part of our daily rhythm in the offices. Sitting occasionally and seeking forgiveness, wrestling and striving against sin and our frail nature. This is different from trying to hold on to the things God would have us leave behind. Anything that competes with our love of Jesus is an idol and must either be dashed in pieces or rightly reordered so that Jesus is Lord of our lives. So, as Christians who are to have the mind of Christ and be walking in his ways, what does this mean for us? In Lent, we hear about both the gravity of our sins and the depths of God's mercy toward us. It is fitting, then, that hearing about the woman and the at the well, we should take it as a lesson in our preparation for the Feast of Easter. Many of us, myself definitely included, want to speak the truth and be the one who reveals the things in shadow, and to be clear, this is a good work of the gospel. However, even this good work can be done with evil intent if our truth-speaking is done for our gain and not out of love. And all too often, the one who rushes to reveal the works done in darkness is reluctant to have any light shown on themselves. What I feel called most to bring to you now is to strive to be in the place of the woman at the well, not as she is evading Jesus' line of reasoning, but as she marvels at having the Messiah revealed to her ask for the hidden things in your heart to be revealed to you so that you can put them away and be healed from all infirmity. If there is anything in your life that has become disordered, ask the Spirit for healing guidance in putting things in their rightful place. In the Collect for this week, we ask that God would look with compassion on the desires of our hearts and that he would purify our disordered affections so that we may see the glory of the Lord Jesus we know that the desires of our hearts are not always aligned with what god's good and perfect will is so we pray for his compassion as opposed to his condemnation we ask that the things we do desire would be put in their rightful in the right place or left behind depending on if there is any root of goodness to them what are these disordered affections the colic mentions in short they are anything that our human frailty places above the loving commands of God. Our desires for power and wealth, influence, sexual satisfaction, memorability, and even notoriety, even our independence and self sufficiency, these can all be examples of disordered affections. If we would have to set aside the love of God or the love of neighbor to fulfill such desires, they are idols and sinful. God wants us to be rid of them. A practice I want to commend to you is a daily examine, which is used to look back on the day and recall with praise the gifts God has given you and with sorrow and repentance the sins we've committed in thought, word, and deed. An example examine can be found in the St. Bernard Breviary books at the front of the church on the front of the very last printed page. If you do this practice for the remainder of Lent, and you see trends in the things you find yourself repenting of as part of the examine, it is perfectly reasonable to approach Father Ben for spiritual counsel and for the rite of reconciliation. As is often said about confession and absolution, all may, some should, none must. Finding such trends in our weaknesses may be the spirit guiding us that we should seek reconciliation from a priest. May God grant us the light of Jesus to bring light to darkness and cast out impurity in our lives so that we may walk with him and proclaim to others about a man who told me all I ever did. Amen.